0: Most everyone is familiar with the Bermuda Triangle, but did you know there is a similar and just as deadly and mysterious Alaskan Triangle? The Alaskan Triangle is a remote area infamous for alien abductions, Bigfoot sightings, paranormal phenomena, and vanishing airplanes. So yeah, the Alaskan Triangle has everything Bermuda Triangle has, but with mountains, better hiking, and a whole lot more crazy. Listeners might remember our podcast episode number 58, the Alaskan Bigfoot. There, we kind of first introduced our audience to a much more aggressive and mystic version of the cryptid. But as they say, oh, there's more, much more, from rumors of black pyramids deep beneath the ground that rival Egypt's Great Pyramid, and even underwater portals, we've just scratched the surface. Join us tonight as we explore a few more mysteries of the Alaskan Triangle. From a child born into this world, we are taught what to believe close minded we become fearful to be deceived. Still we desire to know what lies beyond that locked door. The art of the storyteller conjuring tales of legend and lore. History hidden, lost knowledge, things forgotten and the unknown. These are the things that direct us and will set the tone. Welcome friends to another episode of Nightmares on the Lost Highway.
1: So I wanted to start with some strange facts about Alaska. In any given year, 500 to 2,000 people go missing in Alaska, most never to be seen again. Authorities conduct hundreds of rescue missions every year, and most return without finding the person or any evidence at all. That's not strange as much as tragic, but let's dig into the weird a little bit. Do you know that it's illegal to wake a sleeping bear for the purpose of taking pictures?
0: Well, I think that would be a bad idea. It's a bad idea in general, (laughs) but it's illegal.
1: Well, it's a good thing. They're trying to protect their people. And speaking of bears, did you know that moose injure and kill more people every year than bears do? Pesky moose. Moose? I think my kid was saying meese the other day. (laughs) Uh, uh, Alaska has the lowest population density of any state in the nation, with roughly one person per every square mile. Now, that sounds bad enough, but when you figure there are large cities in Alaska, such as Anchorage, Mm -hmm. where you concentrate a lot of people into one space... That means there's a whole lot of miles of nothing. With nobody claiming that spot, yeah. Now, Barrow, Alaska, 800 miles south of the North Pole, has both the longest and shortest days ever recorded. When the sun rises in May, it doesn't set for nearly three months, and when it sets in November, it doesn't rise again for nearly two months. So, those are some rough days. It is illegal to whisper in someone's ear while they are hunting moose. <laughs> Do you know that? Well, they are deadly. That's, that's Well, yeah, you don't want to take chances. And accidental injuries are the third highest cause of death in Alaska. In addition to car accidents, this also includes people falling down mountains or slipping in the places between glaciers. And drowning is the third highest cause. And of course, the cold temperatures cause bodies to sink instead of float, adding an additional challenge to finding missing people. Now, the Alaskan Triangle, which is our topic of this evening, was first named in 1972. It is marked by the city of Anchorage in the south, Juneau in the southeast panhandle, and Barrow on the north coast. The area is basically undeveloped wilderness, with over half the nation's federally designated wilderness area, encompassing around 57 million
0: acres. You said million. Million.
1: 57 million acres. That's a big, big, big big piece of land. Even more land is not designated as protective land, but is essentially wild and untouched by humanity in any way. And the land is full of natural hazards of all kinds. From unforgiving weather, being no stranger to severe thunderstorms, during a single week in 2019, they experienced as many as tens of thousands of lightning strikes.
0: So, I mean, that's that's crazy. This is kind of like some of our other countries we've talked about. It's trying to kill you in many different yeah. countries.
1: Uh, of course, you have hazardous terrain and dangerous wild animals, as well as being geologically active, being the home of over 100 active volcanoes. That's a lot of
0: active volcanoes.
1: Roughly one in every 250 people have vanished in the Alaskan Triangle of, of the people worldwide who have vanished.
0: And again, I will state most of them, aircraft's not yeah. found, they're not found, like literally just like poof, vanished.
1: Since 1988, there have been over 16,000 disappearances in the Triangle, with Alaska ha- having more annual missing persons reports than anywhere in the U.S.,
0: as oft- as much as twice the national
1: average in some cases, or some years, I
0: should say. Now, the rate per 1,000 people is more than twice the national missing persons average. And yeah. The rate of people who are never found is even higher. Yeah. But basically,
1: what I have here, what I, what I determined, was that four out of every 1,000 people in Alaska will go missing and never be One found One in again. four.
0: Four out of every 1,000. Four out of every 1,000. Okay, that's a little better. Yeah.
1: So, of course, the Alaskan Triangle is rife with unexplained stories. Like Eric talked about in the intro, we've we've discussed the Alaskan Killer Bigfoot, which is a more savage relative of
0: our you know cotton of continuous in, uh, in a mystic aspect. That's yeah, the one that like more could mystical. like go through a tree as a portal, and that's how it disappears. And and yeah.
1: so I, I didn't talk about Bigfoot at all today, I'm, or I'm not going to talk about Bigfoot because we've already covered that. Mm-hmm. But We do have. Many different disappearances. There's a lot of UFO activity. I have what I consider a very, very, very compelling case from the Navy that I'm going to talk about later. But uh, I think you had some some stuff you wanted to.
0: Well, I I do want to, again, kind of going back on the history aspect of myself. uh, The native peoples uh, have their own explanation for what they say explains a lot of the disappearances. There's a creature, a cryptid, that they called the Kushtaka. It is a shape-shifting cryptid that stalks Alaska's wilderness looking for humans for prey. While often compared to the mythology of Bigfoot, the Kushtaka seems to operate in a much more sinister manner. According to lore, this otter-like creature disguises itself as a trusted relative or friend and appears to be you know, their friend, their comrade, but they will go to the ones that are lost or are injured. They lead their victims deep into the wild, ultimately tearing them apart or turning them into another Kushtaka. The legend is especially popular in the southeastern Alaska. Kind of sounds familiar with the Western Native American Indians and the whole skinwalker aspect, but this is an object to, to that type of creature.
1: Lot. I think there was another one that started with a T, the Tingluk or something like that. I think there was another one, a similar type creature, but I, I don't have any notes on that.
0: I'm going to talk about, again, there's so much stuff going on in in the Alaskan Triangle. We had to choose just a few topics, and uh, as we've already said, we've already talked about the more aggressive Alaskan Bigfoot. We might do other podcasts that has more, but we just chose kind of a few. Uh, One of the stories I chose to really follow tonight is a black pyramid. Now, when you hear the word pyramid, I think everybody immediately thinks of the Great Pyramid of Egypt. But there are actually many pyramids of similar design all over the world some in mexico and yes even alleged in alaska but this one is made of a strange black stone with a green tint described similar to that of black onyx oh one more thing it's deep underground and did i mention that it's also at least allegedly twice the size of the great
1: pyramid of giza Now, this isn't the same pyramid where the Predators went to hunt aliens. Oh, no, that was in in the (laughs) South Pole. I'm sorry, my bad.
0: (laughs) It is said to lie between Mount McKinley and Nome, Alaska, about 50 miles northwest of Nome, actually. Now, there's a large square on Google Maps that, as you look directly down on it, makes a square that is approximately 1,950 feet by 1,950 feet that appears a darker green color from Google Maps. If you do some rough calculations and imagine looking directly down on a pointed pyramid, these dimensions would be in line of being twice the size of the Great Pyramid. This area has been privately investigated. Today, in film footage that you can watch on the internet, you can clearly see two sections fenced off and great piles of tailings or debris that would have been removed for suggestion of a massive mining or underground exploration.
1: It's like there had been mining or something.
0: It has also been observed this area does seem to have sporadic, strange magnetic anomalies that could help explain many lost aircrafts that were reported similar to the Bermuda Triangle. The square itself is actually a different color, a darker green on the map. Now, some speculate that that could be the flora and fauna reacting to something possibly buried deep below the surface, affecting it on the surface level. Devil's Advocate. It could also be a discrepancy in the photography from the satellite shadow or
1: whatever There, you, you find weird artifacts like that all over the place. But I will say that a lot of people are using Google Earth, not to derail, I, I apologize, but just a little aside. A lot of people are using Google Earth to find the strange and unexplained. Absolutely. Um, I've seen a lot of pictures from Google Earth that show things like UFOs, giant sea creatures,
0: Hidden ruins. Even large airplanes at the bottom of oceans that have been lost. Yeah, ships. Now, the area is believed to have been discovered, actually, uh, when the Japanese tested the detonation of an underground one-ton nuclear bomb. Now, this was pre-approved by the Geneva Convention, and several scientists took advantage to use that shock wave as a means to measure earthquakes, do research, and kind of a type of sonar imaging of what lied beneath the surface. What they discovered was a triangle, or should I say a giant pyramid, deep beneath Alaska's surface. This was in the early 1970s. Now, the big break that came in this story was after the military started investigating and exploring this same underground anomaly, including, as documented, digging deep access tunnels beneath the Earth. During this time, a local Anchorage, Alaska TV station, simply known as Channel 13, aired a story on November of 1992. Along with hundreds of others, a young military geologist stationed there, Doug Mutchler, watched and listened with the broadcast in a room with about 39 other military soldiers as they waited for their shift to wrap up for the night. They had long conversations about the story, where it was reported this black giant pyramid that was possibly at that time described as as much as four times larger than the Great Pyramid of Egypt and they talked about how the military has has gone in and researched it, and all this was kind of new to them. So it was it was a hot topic. Now, because of Doug's personal interest in such things, he decided to set his VCR to record a later edition of the same story that same evening. However, he seemed to miss it and failed to record it. Doug Mutchler, being the type of man he was, simply decided to visit Channel Thirteen in Anchorage. He Got an appointment, went in, and requested a copy, which he said he tried to record but was unable to. He was denied. He was actually told they did not air any such story. He must be mistaken. Now, he argued. He goes, I saw it myself, along with 39 other military men. As he was leaving, a cameraman cautiously approached him and placed his hand on Doug's shoulder. He said, yeah, we aired that, but I can't help you. They took the film, the tape, and all of it. Before he and the cameraman could discuss the topic any further, a couple men approached and escorted Doug Mutchler off the premises. But Doug did not stop there. In his unique position with the military and geology in particular, he requested maps of the area. He was quite puzzled to find a map dated 1972 in the area that had a huge square that he described as almost being whited out to make a blank on the map. There was text he described that was over the area saying, Unmapped at this time. He knew better than that. The Earth had been mapped decades ago, all areas including the remote area of Alaska. This did not stop Doug. It actually just kind of fueled the fire. It told him that in fact something he felt was going on more here, and he planned over the next several years of his career to find out what. Doug was and is a distinguished military retiree today and he approached his mid-50s, he started to reach out and asking questions on the internet if anyone else remembered or hearing a story of the Black Pyramid of Alaska. Eventually, he contacted Linda Moulton Howe, a renowned paranormal researcher. She's a big name in this, this field. You will see her a lot on uh, uh, Ancient uh, Aliens oh, and, and, she's and a, series. She's a
1: regular on uh,
0: Coast to Coast. Yeah, she's a regular on Coast to Coast AM. Now... As what was described as some issues, as they were trying to set up phone interviews, they would set a time, they would set a place, one person wouldn't show, they would try to call the phone number, like she tried to call Doug's phone number at one time, it said the phone number had been disconnected. Uh, Doug had went to do a phone, or a uh, live interview at a planned location, but she had not divulged exactly where that was going to be at the time. Never got a phone call, so they had to cancel it. There was a lot of weird things going on. But finally, Doug calls Linda one evening and actually questions her. Hey, I thought we had this interview set up. You, you, you ghosted me. You didn't show up. You didn't even contact me. And she goes, well, I tried to, but it said your phone was disconnected. <laughs> and, you know, again, he starts getting this picture in his mind. And he says, I think someone is trying to silence us. So she goes, well, there's no better time than the present. So she just turns on a recorder while they have each other on the phone right there. And they do a successful phone interview. Now, he tells his story. He mentions uh, as a young officer, he was actually based at both Fort Meade and also our very local Fort Leonard Wood uh, up here in uh, Waynesville, Missouri.
1: It has, it has its share of strange stories as well, Indeed. at least locally. You know. it, yeah,
0: locally. Now, while at Fort Meade, Doug stated, I do not want to get into great details, but I will tell you there's a huge military warehouse where there are rows and rows of combination safes. He went to the, I guess what you would call the librarian of the area uh, of this location and requested information on underground sites in Alaska. And again, with his background in geology, this wasn't you know, out of hand. This wasn't out of character. He was escorted back and found two locked safes or vaults regarding regarding that subject. And about that time, two men came out and said, This is a need-to-know subject, and you don't need to know. The whole ordeal has been blacked out, attempted to be erased. And according to Doug, enough is enough. People deserve to know. Now, I'm gonna put on my conspiracy theory tinfoil hat here a little bit. This is a topic that I added to our list probably a year ago and i was just starting to scratch the surface of the alaskan triangle and this black pyramid was something that got my attention i remember a year ago my wife and i we went kind of down the rabbit hole started finding a lot of videos and different things on it i will tell you i spent a week trying to locate information on this and whatever you want to say it's not there anymore
1: it's sparse all the the investigate all the research i did on the Alaskan triangle I think I only found references maybe twice to it and I knew you had mentioned it as part of what you were going to look at so I thought well I'll just let him tackle that but yeah I didn't I I know I didn't stumble across much, much information and what
0: I did was just like oh there's rumors you know or whatever this Linda Moulton Howe uh, was an older interview I want to say about 10 years ago actually and it's not really labeled you know like black pyramid of Alaska it's it's under a different title so some speculate that indeed someone is trying to keep this kind of a hush-hush, and you know maybe that escaped just because it didn't have certain keywords in it. It wasn't as easy to find. But I, I will swear to you that there were many more uh, broadcasts and stuff that's out there. Now, one of the things that's never been relocated is Channel 13's original air news story that they said never existed. But yet hundreds and hundreds of people remember this.
1: That reminds me a little bit, I want to say it was Halloween night, I was probably eight, nine years old, I watched a special on, on local KY3 uh, about a lot of Halloween legends and as they pertain to this area, and I have never found any, anything to confirm that I actually saw that show. Yeah. And it talked about like all kinds of neat folklore, and then referenced openings to hell that are supposedly present in Here the local Missouri? region. Wow. And, yeah, I've never, like, I've tried looking it up online. That's strange. And I can find no record that that show ever exists. but I swear I watched it.
0: So I'll take my aluminum tinfoil hat and place it on the table, and I'll hand it back over to you, Bill. So we talked about how there's a
1: lot of disappearances in the Alaskan Triangle, and the disappearance of House Majority Leader Hale Boggs and Representative Nick Begich was one of those disappearances. Definitely brought some attention to the area. Oh, yeah. In 1972, these two politicians along with aide Russell Brown and bush pilot Don Johns, kind of a cool name, (laughs) uh, vanished in the region while on their way back from Anchorage to Juneau. They were flying in a Cessna 310 uh, when they just disappeared. Uh, The search began, and it lasted 39 days. It included 40 military aircraft, including an SR-71 Blackbird, uh, 50 civilian planes, dozens of boats, including 12 Coast Guard boats, and covered an area of over 32,000 square miles, roughly the size of South Carolina. No evidence of the plane was ever found, and the men have since been declared dead. Now, conspiracy theories around this are are rampant, including the fact that the disappearance could have been orchestrated by none other than J. Edgar Hoover, then director of the FBI, in response to political disagreements he had with Boggs. To this day, no trace of the plane or the men has ever been found. In the, 19, uh, in, in the 1950s, a military C-54 Skymaster carrying eight crew and 36 passengers disappeared. Disappeared from radar, never to be found again. Very similar. Very
0: Bermuda Triangle-ish. Yep.
1: They lost contact with the ground and were never heard from again. There were two separate reports of UFO activity in the area, the week before and two days after. And the Army conducted what was, at the time, the largest military search and rescue operation they had ever engaged in resulting in no evidence ever being found. To this day, this is one of the largest groups of military personnel to go missing ever documented. UFO activity. I believe you reference a
0: Japanese flight. Japanese flight 1628. I've got quite a bit actually on this one. So this is my uh, second main story. The date was November 17th, 1986. Uh, the flight was Japanese Airlines 1628. It took place above Anchorage, Alaska. Our pilot is a Captain Kajinu T., former fighter pilot with over 10,000 logged hours of flight. His co-pilot is first officer Takanori T., and the third person on board, only three people on, on board this aircraft, was his second officer and engineer Yoshio T. Now, Japanese Airlines Flight 1628 was a UFO incident that occurred as stated November 17th, 1986. Uh, involving a Boeing 747-200F cargo aircraft. The aircraft was en route from Paris to Narita International Airport near Tokyo with a cargo of wine. Above the area of Anchorage during the flight at 5.11 p.m. over eastern Alaska, the pilot first noticed two unidentified objects to the left side of him as he is flying, approximately 2,000 feet just below them. As the pilot points them out to the co-pilot, it is noticed that they seemed to prefer the shadows rather than on the opposite, right side, which is still in exposure to the setting sun. Now, the crew believed they could be military planes just performing maneuvers. At approximately 5.18 p.m., seven minutes later, both of these unidentified crafts abruptly rise from below and close into escort with the aircraft, moving to a position of about 500 feet directly in front of Flight 1628. Each had uh, rectangular arrays of what appeared to be glowing nozzles or thrusters, though their bodies remained obscured in the darkness. We're talking about the pilots' bodies in the cockpit. They did mention that there were blinking lights. And by all accounts, this does sound like some type of an aircraft. I mean, you mean the bodies of the craft, right? Wouldn't you mean that if they were obscured in the darkness? Uh, I talk about the or, nozzles? Originally, yes, yes. But then as they pulled up close to them, they were trying to see the pilots themselves as well. Oh, okay. Uh, They were were staying in the dark side, if you will. I get what you're saying now. Uh, Trying to be a little bit more stealthy. Now, when closest, the aircraft's cabin was lit up, and the captain could actually, he said he could feel the heat on his face. They got up that close. Wow. These two crafts departed before a third, much larger disk-shaped, or some people say triangle-shaped objects, started trailing them. Anchorage Air Traffic Control requested an oncoming United Airlines flight to confirm the unidentified traffic. But when it and the military craft sighted at 551, no other craft could be distinguished, meaning they're saying, hey, we see these. They're calling back to Anchorage uh, Traffic Control, and they're saying, we don't see anything on radar. They're non-existent. The flight, uh, the crew of the flight 1628 communicated back and forth with Anchorage Navigation, who again could not find anything appearing on radar. And it was stated, however, that the co-pilot uh, used his navigational type lights and actually tried to like signal these aircraft, and there was some strobe light effects coming from them. The Japanese navigational crew asked if it looked to be uh, they were asked if it looked to be military or civilian aircraft. The response from 1628 states. They're unable to tell. Uh, they're just not sure what it is. It abdu- these two do appear to be some type of an aircraft and have wings and have lights and thrusters. So again, they're kind of thinking this is the military. Now, just when they think the ordeal is over, the pilot turns on the navigational tracking check and they notice this larger third unidentified flying object approaching from the left side quickly. Again, coming in from the dark side, if you will. It's later revealed this vessel is dark in color and more triangle shape, unheard of in the 1986 time frame. Now, this startles and unnerves the Japanese pilots, and they request a heading change of 240 degrees, trying to get away from this new approaching possible threat. Anchorage responds to the request and confirms, you know, go ahead, make the changes in your route, as well as they suggest dropping several hundred feet. Ironically, the third larger and more dark menacing UFO follows suit, maintaining its exact location to the aircraft as if rubber banding it with Flight 1628. At this point, the pilot reports to Anchorage the UFO is following us. The Anchorage uh, Anchorage Air then suggests the plane make a sharp right turn, 360 degrees, just to see what happens. And they do. Anchorage Navigation asks if the UFO is still following. The pilot lets off a sigh of relief and says, No, I don't believe so. There's no sign of it whatsoever, whatever it was. Now at this point, the Elmendorf Military Base Navigational Center contacts Anchorage on a private channel. They have been monitoring the radio broadcasts, and after identifying themselves on this private channel, they report they are still seeing sporadic blips of a very large craft still following Flight 1628. Anchorage asks for help. Do you guys have anyone close by to scramble up there to get your eyes on whatever this is? Elmendorf Military Base responds, Trust me, we're working on that. We are definitely contacting the military desk on this one. Please stand by. Anchorage reports back to Flight 1628 that the military have now been involved, and apparently the unknown craft is still following them, although Flight 1628 does not see it. They check their radar again but no such luck as locating this mysterious dark triangle ship. Elmendorf Military Base and Anchorage Airline Navigation work together, and they decide to offer Flight 1628 military support. But the captain quickly refuses the offer, due to the knowledge of what is known as the Mantel UFO incident in 1948. I wasn't familiar with this, so I did a little dive.
1: Well, see, I don't think I've heard of that.
0: On January 7th, 1948, 25-year-old Captain Thomas F. Mantell, a Kentucky Air National Guard pilot... Okay, I I have heard this story. ...died in the crash of his P-51 Mustang fighter plane near Franklin, Kentucky, United States, after being sent in pursuit of an unidentified flying object, or UFO. I believe it, if if I remember correctly, I believe this case was one of the first
1: uses of the term flying saucer. Yes,
0: the event was among the very first publicized as UFO incidents. Now, Anchorage then intervenes and asks United Flight 69, also in the vicinity, as well as any other planes close by, to veer closer and try to confirm what is being reported by the military. Within moments, Flight 69 arrives, and the report they can only see Flight 1628, which is silhouetted by the sun. They see no other visible sign of any other craft, and it appears to have vanished into thin air, some propose possibly cloaked. Elmendorf Military Base reports that they also now have lost any signal while it was sporadic before. Even theirs has shown nothing for the past 30 minutes. With no other signs or signals of the strange craft in pursuit, Flight 1628 makes its scheduled stop in Anchorage, Alaska, without incident at 6.20 p.m., ending a total of 50 minutes of what is described as the longest documented UFO encounter in history at the time. Captain Kinju-T cited in the official Federation Aviation Administration report that the object was, by definition, a UFO, unidentified flying object. Japanese officials, Jal Soon, grounds him for talking openly to the press and demotes him to a desk job. He was only reinstated as a pilot many years later. Now, the FFA's Alaskan region consulted John C., the FFA Division Chief of Accidents and Investigations Branch, and asked, what are we supposed to tell the media about this entire incident that lasted nearly an hour? John C. stated he was unaware of any such incident, and although uh, he had to speculate, he thought it could be an early development of what could be, or what would become, the stealth bomber from the military. Now, a day later, the FFA headquarters they decided to brief the Vice Admiral Donald E., who watched the radar data and listened tied in with the voice tapes, telling them not to talk to anyone until they were given the okay, and they had time to prepare an encompassing presentation. The meeting was attended by representatives of the FBI, CIA, and even President Reagan's scientific study team, among others. In the closing of the meeting, all present at the meeting were told the incident was secret and that their meeting never took place. According to John C., the FFA Division Chief of Accidents and Investigations, the officials considered the data the first recorded incident of a UFO, and they took all the data and records presented. Now, John C., however, did manage to keep a copy of both the radar data as well as the voice tapes in his office. In addition, the original lost, thought to be lost, Target printouts based on radar blips in the sky during the ordeal were also rediscovered. After a three month investigation, the FFA results were finally released to the public on March 5, 1987. During the press conference, the FFA public affairs officer retracted the earlier UFO sighting term used <laughs> by their controllers during the incident. Oh, imagine that. Well, we've had this happen before. It's not an old story. He went on to say that this was uh, reported was nothing more than a split radar anomaly that appeared to be following 1628, kind of a ghost image mirror radar. Well, that explains why they could see it. Exactly. (laughs) He declared that uh, while they had no reason not to believe the pilots, uh, they wanted to support them. There just simply wasn't enough proof to declare anything more and to drop the case. Now, ironically, there were two more additional UFO sightings in that region. The first occurring January 29th, Uh, 1987, just a little while later, involving an Alaskans airline flight. The second, a day later after that, January 30th, 1987, involving a U.S. Air Force aerial refueling plane. So, was it an experimental military plane? Some might say, if so, why did the military jump in on the broadcasts and start asking questions? Why wouldn't they remain silent?
1: It could be one of those, you know, the right hand doesn't know what the left hand's doing kind of things. We have heard of that happening before, so I think that story seeks nicely into where I was going to go. This is the the big chunk of what I was going to cover today. All right, I think it's probably one of the the some of the better documented UFO activity in Alaska. But we're going to start with Jim Schnabel. Uh, you may have heard that name. He's involved with the military in some capacity, uh, but he has a book about remote viewing entitled "Remote Viewers." Imagine that. Mm. Uh, and according to to these these people that were involved in remote viewing, there is a large alien base in the state of Alaska.
0: Now, for those of you who might not know, correct me if I'm wrong. Remote viewing is almost like an astral projection yeah, kind a, of thing. Yeah,
1: I, I should probably define it a little bit, right? But yeah, it's it's a process by which these people kind of extend their consciousness to a different location, and it allows them to witness what's going on. Astral projection probably is very similar if not, you know, the same phenomenon. But yeah, it allows them to view what's going on in other places. Gotcha, gotcha. Just wanted to clarify. But Schnabel noted that Pat Price, a talented remote viewer, was of the opinion that, quote, Alaska's Mount Hayes, the jewel of a glacial range northeast of Anchorage, housed one of the aliens' largest bases. Now, Price has claimed that aliens lived deep inside the mountain. They were very human-looking, differing only in their internal organs and their eyes. He also claimed, quote, the site has also been responsible for strange activity and malfunction of U.S. and Soviet space objects. Now, strangely enough, the U.S. military took a great deal of interest in these stories of activity in Alaska. And formally classified FBI files tell of startling UFO activity in Alaska between 1947 and 1950. So, these are from official, you know, uh, declassified FBI files talking about what has happened in Alaska. And I, I, this is a long story, but it's very, very detailed. And so I felt, I, I really kind of got caught up in this one. I ended up with a ton of notes. <laughs> Take it away, Bill. In August of 1947, a highly impressive UFO incident occurred involving two active military officers. The report began, quote, This is to advise that two Army officers reported to the Office of the Director of Intelligence Headquarters, Alaskan Department at Fort Richardson, Alaska, that they had witnessed an object passing through the air at a tremendous rate of speed which could not be judged as 2 miles per hour. The UFO was initially seen by only one of these officers, but of course he soon alerted his colleague, and they described the object as, end quote, uh, I'm going to read a lot of quotes from the official document here, quote, shaped like a sphere and did not give the impression of being saucer-like or comparable to a disc. The first officer stated that it would be impossible to give minute details concerning the object, but that it appeared to be approximately 2 or 3 feet in diameter and did not leave any vapor trail in the sky. Now, being an experienced officer, the first officer attempted to gauge the size using environment clues, you know, comparing it to the clouds and the sun and all that stuff, the horizon, and he determined the sphere to be at a height of more than 10,000 feet. Now, to be at such a height and still be visible, the object would have had to have been much larger than the original two to three foot estimate. Huge, yeah. When questioned, the second officer gave, nearly the, uh, gave a nearly identical account of events, although he deferred on the height and the size of the object. He also noted that the object was traveling against the wind. Shortly thereafter, the FBI office at Anchorage reported to J. Edgar Hoover, quote, We have been able to locate a flyer who observed some flying object near Bethel, Alaska, in July of 1947. The pilot reported that the occasion of seeing the flying object near Bethel was on a July day when the sky was completely clear of clouds, and it being nearing the early part, it is daylight the entire day. The time of the sighting of this object was about 10 p.m., and the sun had just dropped beyond the horizon. Flying weather was extremely good, and he was coming into Bethel Airport with a DC-3. So there's an independent witness to the object. As he approached the airport, the pilot reported seeing an aircraft the size of a C-54 without any fuselage. So, I I mean, it's pretty big. Big craft. Uh, And it seemed to resemble a flying wing. Hmm. Now, that's a shape we've heard before. Yes. The pilot remarked that he saw no external power source, such as propeller or engine. The report continued, quote, He called on his radio to the Civil Aeronautics Administration Station at Bethel, asking what aircraft was in the vicinity, and they had no reports of any aircraft. The object he sighted was some 5 to 10 miles from the airport before his arrival, and he stated that the path did not go directly across the airport. He, of course, could not tell whether the object was making any noise, and stated that it was flying at a 1,000-foot altitude at an estimated travel of 300 miles per hour. It was traveling in the direction from Bethel to Nome, which is in a northwesterly direction, he noted no radio interference and is unable to describe the color other than it appeared dark, but of definite shape and did not blend into the sky, but had a definite, concise outline. He clearly observed the object at this time. So a dark-shaped flying wing aircraft. Similar to mine, even. Could we have been building stealth planes back in the back 40s? Then? I don't think so. I don't... Now, see, that, that doesn't seem like it would have been a stealth bomber, right? That's something different.
0: Yeah, a wing. Yeah.
1: Now believe nazi germany they were involved the Luftwaffe was trying to build sort of a flying wing but i believe it had uh, propellers so they they would have seen that
0: yeah, i don't think the technology was there yet for anything now, other than than prop planes. now the other
1: one and this one is incredibly well documented it is amazing the amount of detail that, it, that went into this encounter but this was uh, reported to the fbi by the navy and this occurred over two days in early 1950 uh, and this is a report sent from the Navy to the FBI, it documented multiple UFO encounters involving the military in Alaska. The report was entitled Unidentified Phenomena in the Vicinity of Kodiak, Alaska, and it concerned the sightings of identified airborne objects by various naval personnel. Multiple witnesses confirmed the similar object over the course of two days. On January 22nd, 23rd, 1950, the report noted Lieutenant Smith, U.S. Navy patrol plane commander of P2V-3, Number 4 of Patrol Squadron 1, There's a lot of details there that I don't understand, <laughs> reported an unidentified radar contact 20 miles north of the Naval Air Station Kodiak, Alaska. When this contact was first made, Lieutenant Smith was flying the Kodiak Security Patrol. Eight minutes later, a radar contact was made of an object 10 miles southeast of Kodiak. Lieutenant Smith checked with the control tower to determine known traffic in the area and was informed that there was none. During this period, the radar operator Gasky, ALC, USN, reported intermittent radar interference of a type never before experienced. Contact was lost at this time, but intermittent interference continued. Again, mm. very similar to your story. Mm-hmm. Smith and Gasky were not the only ones to report the UFO activity, though. The USS Tilbrook was anchored in the nearby main ship channel. Seaman Morgan was standing watch, and at some point between 2 and 3 a.m. reported, quote, a very fast-moving red light, which appeared to be of exhaust nature, seemed to come from the southeast, moved clockwards in a large circle in the direction of and around Kodiak, and returned out in a generally southeastern direction. Now Morgan alerted one of his shipmates, uh, a carver, uh, of what he had seen, and so he came out on deck, and they both watched as the UFO made a return flight. According to both men, quote, the object was in sight for an estimated 30 seconds, no odor or sound was detected, and the object was described to have the appearance of a ball of fire about one foot in diameter. Now, the report continues with the experience of a Lieutenant Smith while conducting routine security patrol. He reported, sighting an unknown object at a range of five miles on the starboard bow. The object showed signs of traveling at great speed on the radar. Uh, Smith quickly advised the rest of his crew that the UFO was in sight, all watched as the strange object flew overhead. And I believe this is the same Lieutenant Smith from the earlier flight. Gotcha. Gotcha. Uh, But they estimated the speed to be 1,800 miles per hour. Dang. Uh, Smith tried to climb and intercept and circle the UFO, but obviously due to its high speed and the maneuverability of the UFO in question, loved him in the dust. He, yeah, he <laughs> could not catch it, could not get around it. Uh, Smith and his crew were not prepared for what happened next. The object seemed to be opening the range, and Smith attempted to close. The UFO was observed to open out somewhat, then turn to the left and, and come up on Smith's quarter. Smith considered this to be a highly threatening gesture and turned out all the lights in his aircraft. Four minutes later, the object disappeared from view in a southeasterly direction. Just vanished. So it, it could outmaneuver them. It was faster. And then when he tried to catch it, it was like, oh, no, it came back and was like, you really want to like do this? Off. Yeah. yeah. You really want to do this? At about 4.30 a.m. the following day, Lieutenants Barco and Causer of Patrol Squad 1, while conducting the Kodiak Security Patrol, the same flight that the other group was conducting, also sighted an unidentified aerial vehicle. This time it was about 62 miles south of Kodiak and for about 10 minutes the two lieutenant's and their pilot captain Paulson watched as the object maneuvered through the sky quote 1 to lieutenant smith and crew it appeared as two orange lights rotating about a common center like two jet aircraft making slow rolls in a tight formation it had a wide speed range number 2 to morgan and carver it appeared as a reddish orange ball of fire about 1 foot in diameter traveling at a high rate of speed 3 To Couser, Barco, and Paulson, it appeared to be a pulsating orange-yellow projectile-shaped flame with regular periods of pulsation on 3 to 5 seconds. Later, as the object increased range, the pulsations appeared to increase to 7 or 8 seconds on and then 7 or 8 seconds off. The final comment of the report read, In view of the fact that no weather balloons were known to have been released within a reasonable time before the sightings, it appears that the object or objects were not balloons. If not balloons, the objects must be regarded as phenomenon, possibly meteorites, the exact nature of which could not be determined by this office. Hmm. Now, I don't know about you, my understanding of meteorites is they tend to fall through the atmosphere to the ground. They don't usually maneuver around aircraft yeah. and speed up and slow down. Slow down, and circle back and make around. Make circles and, and travel
0: back and forth. Uh, that's something that has some intelligence. A falling that rock does not.
1: it an official three-page report issued from the Navy to the FBI. I mean... I'm sorry.
0: And that was kept under wraps obviously. Yeah, I mean, Uh, yeah, I don't know when it was
1: declassified, but at the time they did not talk about it. So I don't know I trust people in the military to a certain degree to be truthful about their encounters.
0: Well, again, like you mentioned, sometimes the right hand doesn't know what the left hand's doing. Different divisions and need to know. it's
1: entirely possible somebody was developing some kind of aircraft, but the fact that these guys saw these things and reported on them, and we have documentation here, and then I liken the, oh, well, maybe it was a meteorite. Yeah. Was, no.
0: Well, you got to consider the Alaskan Triangle. There, there's so many theories out there. One is that there is an underground alien or possibly shared military base underground. Uh, another is where possibly this black pyramid is a beacon or energy source. And some say that when the Japanese uh, set off that nuclear one-ton bomb, that that kind of awokened or charged the alleged underground pyramid. And so then they're thinking there could be a portal in the sky allowing UFOs, ships, aircraft, whatever, to travel through almost like a wormhole experience. So, I mean, alaska, Alaska's alaska got it going on in the paranormal weirdness factors. Well, it's
1: like I said, when, when, one, when, when four out of every thousand people is going to disappear, and never be found again? Never be found again. And mind you, that's the stuff, you know, like the ones that are never found, you know? I, I used to work with a guy. I don't know if I've related the story or not, but he used to live in Alaska. And he was telling me one day, just just riding his bike to his neighbor's house, he got chased by a grizzly bear, you know? And it's like, I mean, you live in a state, It like I hate to joke about it compared to, you know, Australia, but. You figure the terrible weather, and then you've got moose and bear and all kinds of crazy stuff.
0: I, I totally agree with that. But again, if a grizzly bear or whatever takes you off your bike, it's not going to take the bike. There's going to well, be some form of evidence. I, I did find one story that
1: was related. I didn't, I didn't jot down the notes, so I may get some of the details wrong. But it was about a hunter who had disappeared and, and for, I think it was like two years. No evidence of this guy turned up whatsoever. And then there was another hunter in the area leading a hunt. And he came across a skull on the ground, an old rifle that was, was weathered, and, a, and the, remain, like the bones of a large bear. And there was a spent casing in the rifle that had not been ejected. So by all accounts, this guy went out in the woods, and what it looks like is that he was attacked by a bear. He shot and killed the bear, Double but not out. before the bear had critically injured him. Yeah. And for two years, they found no evidence of this. He just stumbled upon this while leading another hunting party. And so, yeah, I mean, you can completely just wrong place, wrong time.
0: Well, I was thinking back to our uh, Alaskan Bigfoot episode there in, um, I think it was uh, Chatham Port, uh, Alaska. It was pretty common for hunters and stuff to go missing, but it seemed like after a whole season, like I know there was one part of the story where uh, bodies had washed down off the mountain and were found frozen like in the, the coast beach area. You would think, I mean, with the weather and stuff, that maybe eventually it would well, wash stuff away, the, the uh, reveal it, is The weather's kind of
1: working against you, though. I mean, they, when we get snow here, we get a couple inches, right? They get snow there, it's, feet. you can measure it in feet. Yeah, true. So you're going to bury a whole body if you don't find it in time, and then once the weather sets in, you know, you may never have another opportunity to find that body.
0: Well, unrelated, but still related. I remember one time working night shift, I had a you know, pair of gloves. It was winter. I, I had on and. Apparently, I dropped a glove out in the yard, and it snowed that night. (laughs) I bet I walked over that glove the next day, and we probably had two inches of snow. But I mean, yeah, I totally lost it until the snow all melted off, and it's like, oh, well, there's my glove. I probably had footprints still on it where I walked across it.
1: So, is it time for headlines, Eric? I do believe it is. Mine's short and sweet. I figured with the heavy UFO activity we were talking about, I found though what is probably one of my favorite headlines. This is almost as good as the the eating the potato headline. <laughs> so, are you ready for this, Eric? Let me have it from Boston's Rock ninety two point nine, March 9th, twenty twenty three. Someone hiked a three thousand foot mountain to draw a huge wiener in the snow. <laughs> <laughs> An Alaskan ski resort had to call in a helicopter to cover up some unexpected snow art at the top of their mountain.
0: (laughs) Oh, my gosh.
1: Unidentified artist hiked up a 3,000-foot mountain at night navigating by the light of the full moon to draw um, a a huge penis in the snow. How big was this? The art ended up, the art in quotes, I'm going to say. Yeah, yeah. The art ended up being the size of a football
0: field. That's a big wiener. That's a lot of work <laughs> just for a, a, a- Out there trucking a, around?
1: Yeah, a, a dick joke. Yeah, yeah,
0: that's horrible.
1: Yeah, this was apparently the Alyeska Resort in Alaska.
0: And I'm imagining these poor aliens flying over in UFOs, and it's like, really? These humans have nothing better to do.
1: <laughs> well, the best part is is uh, they they showed pictures of it, and apparently some other folks hiked up in the process of- Deciding how to handle this snow art, yeah, and they walked around by the testicle region, we should say, and in uh, inadvertently helped add to the add art. To they the made art. it look like there was hair. Oh, yeah, and yeah. Uh, like I said, apparently they had to call in this helicopter to blow the snow out to to cover
0: it up. These guys get called back. It's like, "Yeah, don't go, but don't go back there again. You're you're not helping. You're making the matter <laughs> <out of laughs> yeah, worse. He's just making it worse. Quit." <laughs>
1: but yeah, you could see in the snow where they had walked, like. I guess they were on skis or something or maybe snowshoes or whatever you could. It was like if you had walked in your yard and whatnot, but it was
0: huge.
1: Wow. I I wanted to lighten it up. I found that headline and I couldn't help myself.
0: (laughs) Well, mine's going to be talking about uh, Alaska directly. Uh, if, If looking upon massive sand dunes, one might immediately think they're in massive deserts such as the Sahara. But in another location, sand dunes can easily reach over 100 foot tall. Surprisingly, if walking in this region, you will see winding rivers that carve through some of these massive sand dunes of, yes, Alaska. You heard me right. Alaska has sand dunes. Unlike its counterpart, the heated deserts, here in Alaska, the sand dunes, you will find an abundance of wildlife, including caribou and bear and deer. This region is also way above the Arctic Circle, so there are times it's entirely blanketed with snow, as we were just kind of alluding and talking to. It is known as the Quebec Sand Dunes, and it's located in the west-central region of Alaska. It covers an area of about 25 square miles and can even be seen from satellite imaging from space. And actually, there are three other smaller isolated sand dune anomalies there in Alaska. These strange sand dunes were created due to gigantic glaciers that covered the area, ground up boulders and rocks beneath them, making sand as they moved about for centuries. Then as the glaciers melted and shifted, the sand was left in the lower areas and further positioned by rainfall in the flowing rivers. So I, for one, had no clue. Alaska had sand dunes. Well,
1: I know you compared it to desert. I mean by definition a desert is just an area of low rainfall. You can actually have deserts in, in any place. True, true, like, true. You know, cold climates and so like, I believe by definition there are parts of the um Siberian tundra that mm-hmm. are defined as desert just because Well so, even
0: in some of the western deserts, the temperatures at night can get very cold.
1: Oh, you you can freeze to death yeah. in, in the in the desert,
0: so you gotta you gotta be careful. But again, so mountains, water, UFOs, mean Bigfoot, Sasquatches, Sasquatch, sand dunes, strange pyramids. What what's not to like in Alaska? Man, it's probably we.
1: There's probably more episodes to come talking about stuff from Alaska.
0: Well, we certainly hope that you've enjoyed tonight's taste of Alaska's Triangle. Thanks for listening. There were two separate port. Rem- Man,
1: <laughs> there were two separate reports of UX. Come on, okay, get it down. together. Pull it. together. I want to take a time to thank the people that helped bring this all together. Uh, Alex Tudor, you can almost call him our producer at this point. Sarah Tudor, who also helps with some of the technical stuff. I want to take a moment to extend thanks to Eric for letting us use his space to record in kind of our makeshift studio.
0: I, in turn, would like to thank Bill for, one, putting up with me and uh, using this camaraderie to do something we both very much love and enjoy doing, and thank Bill's family for allowing him to spend all the time to work and clean up our recordings and present them in what uh, you hear in the final uh, terms, uh, the final edition, if you will. And I'd like to thank all of you for continuing
1: to, to listen. I know we've got some loyal followers out there. We do this as a labor of love. But we're we're happy that there are people that enjoy it as hopefully as much as we do. Thank you very much.